1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News Jeff Sample on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the Super Awesome Science Show. Pandemic. The word alone strikes fear into anyone who hears it. You might imagine apocalyptic, dystopian scenarios and a ton of hazmat suits. But are these fears really justified or are we worrying for nothing? This week, we're going to take a deeper look at pandemics, what they are, how they arise, how common they are and why you should care. Plus, in our SAS class, is the next pandemic lurking somewhere in the melting permafrost? The answer may surprise you. I'm Jason, the Germ Guy Tetro, and I am about to take you on a journey into the microscopic world of pathogens. But this isn't about the end of the world, just the end of your worry. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. 1918. 1957. 1968. 2009. These are landmark years for a variety of reasons. World War I ended in 1918. Chevrolet released one of the most iconic vehicles in 1957. The 747 jet took off for the first time in 1968 And history was made in 2009 as the first non-white president, Barack Obama, was inaugurated into office. Now for me, these years have a very different meaning. They're all years in which influenza became a pandemic. Now the reason I bring this up is because when we hear the word pandemic, we think of a situation that may lead to the extinction of the human race. A virus is running rampant and threatens our very existence. You've seen the movies, you know the plot, someone coughs, (coughs) the world ends. Yet, when it comes to actual pandemics, that fear may be unwarranted. In fact, the word pandemic itself is really hard to define. Merriam-Webster says an outbreak of a disease that occurs over a wide geographic area and affects an exceptionally high proportion of the population. Now, if you ask the World Health Organization, it's a bit different. It's simply, worldwide spread of a new disease. Now, these are probably the most used definitions, although there appears to be little to no consensus on the issue. But what I want you to note is that there's something missing from both these definitions, and many others. Rapid and widespread death. That's right. A pandemic is not about death, even though it certainly can be. It's really all about spread. And when you realize that, then you will notice we experience pandemics all the time. Think about the common cold. We have a pandemic of it every year. How about sexually transmitted illnesses? We see rates skyrocketing right now. And don't forget HIV. Then there's tuberculosis. It's a world health priority as the number of cases grow daily. So when you think of a pandemic, don't go straight to the end of the world. Instead. Just realize that there are far more menacing threats around. So, what makes an influenza strain a pandemic one? And can we tell or predict what may be a pandemic based on what we see every year? And finally, what about those strange flus, like those avian flus that everyone talks about? Do they really have the pandemic potential? Well, to answer these questions, I have the perfect person on the line. He's Dr. Earl Brown, and when it comes to flu, there's no one better. He's a known viral evolutionist and has been Canada's expert for decades. He joins me from Ottawa. The 2009 pandemic. I mean, I've been trying to explain this for years, and people still don't seem to get it.
0: So really, it was a species jump that we always hear about. So flu... Uh, as humans are concerned about human flu but human uh it originates in animals so birds at the basis but it can move up through animals and if you talk about the h1n1 pandemic of 2009 that was a came from swine but it was circuitous in the swine as well because uh this virus that came out had genes from from influenza strains that infected humans pigs wild birds and uh and was quite a mix-up of those genes. And that virus came out and spread really well through humans.
1: When you think about flu from the perspective of a person who might be concerned about a pandemic right now, is this a rare occurrence, or are we doomed to see this over and over?
0: Well, that's the thing, the, the cycle of infections. And we're really in the virologic era where we can isolate viruses, uh, look at their genes, that sort of thing. But uh, that's pretty recent. That's really since the 50s. And if you really talk in the detailed way... It's molecular biology being able to sequence the genes of the virus and knowing how they change. And that's really just the last few decades, uh, which of our tools have improved better and better. So we're, we're knowing more and more about how these viruses arise and evolve. But it's a really newfound understanding, and we don't have a really good historical view. Uh, there's epidemics uh, over recorded history, and there's a lot of argument sometimes. Well, was that an influenza epidemic, or was that some other virus or bacterial epidemic. So looking at the past is more murky, but getting up to the present, we see that there are viruses that cycle in and out of species and humans, and there is some cycle that we're not totally understanding, but we do see the viruses change, and they change what they infect and, and and what type of infection they cause, sort of a mild one. Uh, or a really nasty one.
1: Do you think this might be the reason we haven't seen possible pandemics like the avian flu we keep hearing about really reach their potential? You know, is it due to a lack of enough cycling? Does it need to get into enough people to evolve? Or are we really worried about something that may never happen?
0: Well, it may never happen, but I guess we do know that it does happen uh, historically. And the question is, will we get another new strain to which we don't have a vaccine, we'll have to make another vaccine sort of thing, something that catches us flat-footed, and we got to jump on something new. And if this thing is highly virulent, that is, it causes a lot of damage, equals death uh, and severe disease, then you're really scrambling. So it, it could happen. It has happened before. And uh, everyone worries about the crowded planet. We're crowded with humans, crowded with animals and I, the best data comes from animals you've crowd animals and you put in a, a pathogen that's not particularly nasty say influenza and especially with like avians uh, you'll eventually get a highly virulent virus that then kills all the avians in that scenario well that's an artificial scenario those are barns those, those are our, our livestock mm-hmm. and uh... and we also see it in humans uh... the army's done tons of studies of what happens when you get those recruits together and the, their barracks and they know how adenovirus outbreaks arise and, and get quite difficult for them in those crowded situations. So we know there's an overlap of crowding and, and animals and as well as humans as, with respect to the evolution of disease. Will it get worse? And so you've got the crowding situation, which, you know, the pr- planet is getting crowded. You know, the, the billions are adding up, you know, 7 billion and counting. Those are big questions.
1: Do you think that in this particular case that maybe a vaccine might be the answer? Now, I'm not talking about the current vaccine type. We already know that in the last few years, it's been a pretty tough situation. But what about if we move to a universal vaccine? Do you think that could help us to avoid new pandemics down the road?
0: Well, yes, that's the Holy Grail. And so the Holy <laughs> Grail has been elusive and uh, mysterious and, and out of sight. But, but universal vaccines are something that's being published on right now. So their flu vaccines generally are quite narrow So you make a vaccine to H1N1 in 2009, it hits that virus and it misses most of the others. Uh, So when you get a new virus that shows up, you're always doing this catch up thing. Can we make a new virus that suits this new strain? Well, the universal vaccine will be strain independent. It would be for an influenza virus, everyone in the A group and the A group and the B group are the one that we're always getting vaccinated against. Uh, But if we got a universal, we could uh, hit all the existing A's and B's that are, in, or A's that are in humans right now. I probably have to have another one for B. But you're getting very broad vaccines, these universal vaccines that can, at this point, uh, inhibit a large number of influenza viruses. But we haven't quite reached the point where we've got one shot hits all the flu strains.
1: So I want to do something we used to do all those years ago, predicting whether this year's flu is going to be bad or mild or even light. Now, I've taken a look at the data, and I I imagine you probably have as well. And I'm just wondering, what do you think?
0: Well, I haven't looked to the ground. I'm as close as I normally do, but I usually look to the Southern Hemisphere and, and the hospital reports and that sort of thing from Australia and South America who are going through their flu season when we're enjoying the sun up here. So when our come, flu season comes in the fall and it's cold, we look and see, well, what's it been doing just in the, in the south of us, Southern Hemisphere before that. And I have seen some reports, but I haven't heard unusual reports. And so we'll see what comes when it comes
1: I'm thinking it's going to be a fairly light season this year. And from what I gather, the vaccine is a good match, which is probably going to be very helpful. I can only imagine you're hoping that this year will also be light and that we won't see some of the troubles that we've seen over the past few years with respect to both the virus and and the vaccine.
0: Yes, uh, those are the hopes.
1: A pandemic has three requirements. The first is that it has to be new to you. In other words, your immune system hasn't seen it before. The second is that it has to cause a serious illness requiring medical treatment. The third is that it can spread very easily from person to person, and this latter one is usually aided if the pathogen is able to spread by coughing and sneezing. Now flu definitely fits these requirements, and so do a number of other pathogens. You've probably heard of the plague. It caused one of the greatest pandemics ever registered, killing over the course of four years, half of the European population. Yes, you heard me, half, that's frightening. The bacterium behind the plague, Yersinia pestis is absolutely brutal because it has two ways of being able to survive inside of you. First, it evades the immune system by living inside the same immune cells that are normally used to kill it. It just sneaks in and, much like a Trojan horse, attacks the very thing that's supposed to protect you from disease. But it gets worse. Because when the bacteria finally emerge out of those cells in order to spread around the body, they come armed with immune-destroying weapons known as Yersinia outer proteins, or Yops. And we're not talking about the yogurt drink here, folks. These Yops target and kill other immune-fighting cells, so essentially, as the bacterium is spreading, it is not only making you sick, it is destroying your immune system in the process. Now, it's no surprise that you're knocked off your feet as the infection grows in your body. And then it's easy for Yersinia to move on to the next unsuspecting victim with something as simple as a cough, a sneeze, or even a touch that can spread it from one individual to another. Of course, you probably know about the flu and the plague and maybe others like smallpox. But I bet there's one virus you know, but never believed it could cause a pandemic. It's measles. Yes, measles is a pandemic virus. It quickly infects your body, avoids your immunity, spreads throughout the body, and can kill about one in every thousand. It's also the most contagious virus out there, and for centuries, 90% of children ended up with the infection long before they reached the age of 15. That's a pandemic. Now, we don't hear much about measles anymore and that's due to one very simple fact. We have a vaccine. It's our best defense against a pandemic. Just listen to some of the names and you'll realize how awesome vaccines really are. Polio. It was a huge pandemic causer. Now it's almost gone smallpox, it's been eradicated because of vaccines. And let's not forget about Ebola. It's a really nasty virus that does have pandemic potential. However, now that we have a vaccine that essentially is 100%, we may be able to put this virus down for good. Now, we also have a flu vaccine. However, as we've seen over the last few years, it hasn't been all that great. And that's because the virus tends to change quickly as Dr. Brown said earlier. We have to try and predict what will happen in nature in order to be sure we have the right combination of factors to keep us safe in the future. But what if a change doesn't happen naturally? What if the mutations are made in a lab such that no current vaccine could be made? We'd be in trouble. In theory, the idea of a lab starting a pandemic, it's possible we do have the ability to alter living organisms at will, making them do whatever we want. I mean, this is called genetic engineering and it's been in place since the 1970s. It's also very easy to accomplish these days. But the question is, is it possible to make a pandemic virus using genetic engineering? Well, my next guest should know. He recently made headlines as he managed to make a cousin of smallpox known as horsepox in the lab. And that wasn't the only reason he attracted attention. All the buzz, really, was about how he managed to get the genes in the first place. Supposedly, he ordered them in the mail. His name is Dr. David Evans, and truth be told, I've known him for decades. He was my supervisor back in the early 90s and revealed to me the promise of genetic engineering. And I'm happy to speak with him now. Now, I have to ask you right off the bat, what were you thinking when you made this virus? Surely you must have known it was going to cause a stir.
2: Yeah, I, I had expected that there would be um, uh, people would express concerns about the research. Um, I know well from having worked for many years in the field of pox viruses that they take a, they have a special place in people's imagination because <laughs> of the existence of smallpox. And so anytime you do any kind of work with a virus in that family, then it gets um, a lot more attention than would work with other uh, types of viruses. Yeah, I know. I also knew about the work with the poliovirus, for example.
1: Now, I personally have seen the study, and I think it's awesome. And, And for the record, that's not because you were once my supervisor. But when I saw the media reaction to this, I was actually quite shocked because it was all about this idea that, you know, you ordered all the DNA in the mail. Oh, my God, how scary is that? That's not entirely correct, is it? I mean, what exactly did you get in the mail?
2: Well, I mean, in fairness, they're sort of, they've got their, they've only got so much space, so they're abbreviating what was actually done. Um, But realistically, what you do is you order stuff from these companies and go through a lot of paperwork, and given the cost, there's a lot of, um, you know, Uh, checks and balances that are put into place. Um, You order it from this company. These companies actually filter the sequences that you send them to make sure you're not ordering anything known to be dangerous.
1: So there's a check in place to make sure you're not going to make a bioweapon.
2: Yeah, if you tried to get uh, anything that falls on certain lists of um, what are generally considered dangerous human or agricultural pathogens, um, gets caught in these filters, and then the companies will say, well, who are you and do you have any rights to do this? And I mean, they'll still make it if you're authorized to receive the materials, but they do checks and background checks on, on who's doing this and who's doing what.
1: And someone who's been working with pox viruses for 30 years might actually have that kind of clearance, I imagine?
2: Uh, yeah, but again, even so, I, I wouldn't be allowed to order certain types of pox viruses without getting a lot of clearances, like monkey pox, for example, and certainly you would never be able to order uh, varial virus, the one that causes smallpox. Uh, that's a, a, a dead no anywhere in the world.
1: So you end up ordering these sequences that are safe, They're they've gone through the checks, and then they show up in your lab. What happens next? Take us through the process so that we understand how to make a virus.
2: Um, Well, so they do arrive by, I think it's FedEx or Purulator or something. And then um, what we do is they're a whole series of uh, bacterial plasmids. Um, uh, Usually they're provided already in the bacteria. So we grow them up uh, and purify the plasmids. Um, And they're they're technically quite difficult to work with. Uh, They're big. They're very big plasmids. And that as anyone who works in this field will know, those are often unstable.
1: And a plasmid, just for the listeners, is a piece of DNA, a genetic material, that's actually in the form of a circle.
2: Yeah, it's in a circle, and, and they're modified so that they can be grown in bacteria and amplified in bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, and the process getting them actually can take months. I think it took almost a year for us to get these. They're very mm-hmm. hard to make, some of these large clones. Um, so then once you got them, what you do is you would purify the DNA. Um, we cut the parts of the plasmid that are bacterial out. We don't want them or need them. Right. Um, and then the the fragments of DNA are transfected into cells where there is already another pox virus replicating. Um, the DNA of a, some viruses, the DNA, if you just take it or the RNA and stick it in a cell, it 'll actually start making more viruses, but pox viruses are too complicated for that that won't
1: work now you're dealing with a complicated process known as rescuing. I mean you have to have an available pox virus already in the system to make sure everything is happening correct.:
2: yeah, you have to kind of kick start it um, yeah. with the help of a, a helper virus that's already in there and you know where my own specific knowledge comes in in this business is we've studied um, how these viruses join, recombine DNA um, for, well, actually probably since I knew you.
1: Yeah, I remember doing that with a version of the vaccinia virus with you.
2: And and so what what the the helper virus will do is kind of piece the DNA together into a complete genome. Um, And then kind of once that's being put together, it is able to kickstart itself and get going and make copies of that particular virus. And because the helper virus is different from the one that we're assembling, um, uh, you, you get out a mixture of the two viruses, and then there's some tricks we use to separate out the, the new virus we want from the helper virus we had in the past.
1: Okay, let me get this straight. First, you have to order the plasmid and pass all the security checks. Then you need a lab capable of doing the rescuing, And then you need to make sure the plasmid becomes the DNA that eventually becomes the virus that needs to be rescued by another virus until you finally have the final product. This all sounds incredibly complicated, and I have to ask you something. If I'm just an average Joe and want to create a pandemic virus, do you think I'm going to be able to with your technique?
2: No, the average Joe couldn't do it. Um, Of course, where the critics and people express concerns have is that um, you know, there are rogue states that we, you know, um, and I don't want to cast aspersions on any particular one, but, mm-hmm. you know, they've got scientists, they've got good scientists, they've got money, and theoretically, they could probably do this. Um, so that, so I think that's where the concern really lies. I mean, there is a lot of discussion around these home hobbyists that are sort of setting up their biotech in the garage, but um, frankly, I think they'd first be caught in these filters from the companies that make these DNAs and secondly this is actually still technically very hard to do.
1: Let's shift gears a little to the actual reason for your research and this comes from your recent papers in the public library of science journals. It seems like it's all about vaccines so what is the justification for this kind of work to be able to make a better vaccine?
2: Yeah, well, there's 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 two lines of, there's two kind of products we're interested in producing. Plus, also there's some basic research here as well. Um, the first one is that the the company that sponsored the work is very interested in um, the continued. Um, it, there's a continued belief that we need a, a, a we still need to develop better smallpox vaccines. We've got some, um, you know, as those vaccines were used in the 1970s and then we quit using them after the disease was eradicated. Um, by modern standards, those vaccines would not be acceptable. Um, they were fine when there was still a disease, but um, modern standards of what a vaccine looks like have, have improved dramatically. So there is a, there is a, a significant number of people who think that there is an, still a need for a better and safer smallpox vaccine. And that's that's really the the work that the company we're collaborating with um, is, is focused on, and, and, and they're taking it kind of from here on that that side of things.
1: From what I gather from this concept, it looks like we're trying to come up with better ways to protect ourselves in the future should we experience another pandemic, whether it be from a pox virus or, or some other pathogen.
2: There's The spin-offs from the technology is that, that you, can, you can gene edit the virus you're making um, and again, that's yes for good or ill. Um, but, you know, uh, one spin-off for example was if you're interested in making the using the um, the, 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 the virus vector that, that you've made in the first place as a carrier for other other gene sequences, so you want to make protection against some different viruses, you can use the uh, pox virus as a vector to um, provide cross-protection, you'd have to clone things into it. And so the synthetic technology, uh, the gene synthesis work, um, It's uh, if you're ordering a piece of DNA, you can just as easily add some extra sequences to produce uh, another recombinant antigen. And the other thing we're really interested in is I work in the field of oncolytic viruses, which is using pox viruses as treatments for cancer and uh, we're working on developing a treatment for bladder cancer. Now, where the field is going in that area is that it's becoming quite clear that simply knocking out a few genes, which we can do already with other older technologies, is probably not going to cut it. We're going to have to be able to modify these viruses in much more sophisticated ways and put more complicated things on them, like immune regulatory genes. Mm -hmm. So, As the field goes forward, the synthetic biology that we described, um, you know, the the, the smallpox vaccine is, is, I think, a valuable addition. But I think the real power of the technology is to make these much more complicated vaccines and, and oncolytic vectors.
1: So basically, the media stories really should have been not about how a professor makes potential pandemic virus from mail order catalog but maybe it should have been professor looking for ways to help develop vaccines and maybe cure cancer.
2: Well, it would be nice, but I'm of a realist <laughs> to know that's not the story, right? I mean, the story is, and, you know, it's an important story. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I take it very seriously What the critics of it that, 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 yeah, I mean, we've been warning public health authorities now for the better part of a decade that that synthetic biology um, offers a route to um, bypassing the, uh, the 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 existing methods of secu- security that we've got. I mean, I've seen the labs in CDC and in koltsovo where they do the smallpox research, and and they're you know they're real safe. They got everything locked up, lots of barbed wire, armed guards, and so on. But the point is that the synthetic biology has gone in the last since the early 2000s. It has you know it's grown dramatically, in it's. Um, it offers a, a really, and it does, it's a really concerning alternative way of making these agents you can't just lock them up and be sure they're safe.
1: It's time for our weekly lesson in super awesome science. Today, we're going to focus on something you may have heard about, the permafrost pandemic. Now, the ice in the Arctic is melting, and we are finding all sorts of hidden treasures. Some are human, like mummies, but others are microbial. We've heard how ancient microbes and worms have been found and, yes, revived. And this is becoming more common as researchers continue to look for life in the once-hidden regions of our planet. Now, you might think we're going to talk about how these bugs could possibly be the source of a new pandemic, but we're not. Instead, we're going to hear about how those microbes might be able to prevent a different kind of pandemic, greenhouse gas. On the line, I have Dr. Charles Greer from the National Research Council of Canada. He spent most of the last 40 years looking at microbes in the soil and how they have an impact on the planet. Based on his research, we are not just facing, but are in the middle of a climate change pandemic. But the microbes living inside this frozen soil might be able to help us slow down the drastic effects. At least for now. Let the lesson begin. First off, what do you think of the idea of a human pandemic coming out of the melting permafrost?
3: Um, i'm a little I'm a little doubtful that that would actually happen. I think some of the research that's been going on in relation to melting permafrost has shown that uh, despite things like uh, anthrax uh, being uh, detected and things like that, there's a lot of work that's also been looking at various viruses coming out of permafrost that hasn't been successful. so, um, anthrax is with us here now. It's going to be with us for probably forever. Um, I think some of the other things that are buried in permafrost will probably uh, get degraded and broken down as the permafrost melts because as the temperature goes up, a lot of enzymes that are capable of digesting viruses and various other organisms that might be stocked in the permafrost will become active, and a lot of this material will just be degraded.
1: when we talk about enzymes, that's something you have studied closely for a number of years. And I've looked at some of your papers and it seems like microbes make enzymes that can lead to a phenomenon called um, and I hope I have this right a methane sink
3: there are uh, there are methane sinks, yes, that's correct. and uh, these are these are things where these are areas, I guess where you could say that Uh, Methane will be uh, effectively destroyed by microbial action. There's a a methane sink in the atmosphere where um, methane that's liberated into the upper atmosphere can be broken down by some of the hydroxyl ions that are already in the atmosphere into carbon dioxide and water. And then there's a variety of microbes that are in the soil itself that can take methane and break it down into carbon dioxide and water or use the carbon in the methane for their own carbon needs for growth.
1: That all sounds very positive, to be honest, but I don't think people should be celebrating just yet. Uh, how could the melting permafrost still end up being a problem?
3: Well, in some cases, the as as permafrost melts, the carbon that's stocked in the permafrost has basically two routes that it can go. One is to be broken down into carbon dioxide, and the other one is to be... Um, liberated as methane, and usually um, if one was to look at something like a wetland, that is a, a good source of methane, whereas a drier, uh, higher-altitude soil is a, potentially a methane sink. In other words, methane that's liberated from the permafrost below as it percolates up through the soil will be degraded and consumed by the me- uh, methylotrophic bacteria or the <laughs>
1: Okay, for everybody out there, when we talk about bacteria, we, we tend to call them based on their preferred type of food. And in this case, methylotrophic means that these particular bacteria actually like methane.
3: Exactly. So, so, there, so in, a, in, a, in a flooded soil, like a wetland soil, there is microbes that will uh, produce methane from some of the other carbon um, molecules that are present. And then if there's oxygen present... Those same, a different type of uh, microbe will consume the methane with the oxygen so that it's converting it into something that is more usable. So it's effectively
1: consuming the methane. So the microbes are helping to consume the methane. and That's good. And we're also seeing a potential for a rise in carbon dioxide, which could be bad for the environment. So we're not seeing any signs for a pandemic. Instead, we're really seeing a shift in the natural way microbes have been controlling our atmosphere for billions of years.
3: Exactly. That's exactly what's happening is the, the input of methane into the atmosphere is going to increase as a result of the permafrost melting, potentially. But that's not necessarily a given because there are organisms that still consume methane. So uh, a lot of people think that some of these microbes may become more dominant as their food source increases.
1: Moving forward, will we be able to use microbes to alter that methane carbon dioxide balance so we can avoid all the problems in the future? I think it's already a problem in one in one sense,
3: but uh, but at the same time the nature itself is very resilient and capable of making adjustments to accommodate different changes in our atmosphere. So um, the methane that's being released, the, con- the consumption rate may go up substantially if the rate of methane production goes up. So there's, gonna, there's a built-in balance in nature anyway. The, the biggest issue, I think, comes from uh, burning fossil fuels, for example, that are known to increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that, that is uh, still a significant issue. So really, when it comes down
1: to it... Um- We can't blame the microbes for the problems that we're experiencing in our climate and any kind of disaster that's coming. I mean, it sounds like we really have to look at ourselves first. Well, that's it for this episode of the Super Awesome Science Show. I hope you have found it contagious enough to go viral. If you have any questions or want to make a comment, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For ideas longer than 280 characters, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us get more people to find the podcast. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.